BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 20th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com, the official razor partner of Movember. Harry's delivers a superior shave for an incredible price. Over 1 million people have made the switch, and they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an amazing deal. Use coupon code Inquiring Minds, and you can get their starter set, which includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel for just $10. Go to Harry's.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S, Dot com and enter coupon code inquiring minds to get started. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories and is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, and even tonic water. Always zero calories. So Zevia makes amazing guilt free cocktails whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. Today, we continue our month-long series on science and space. And when I think astronomy, I naturally think black holes. I think pop culture and Stephen Hawking have undue influence on me in that way. So thank you guys. Uh, But not all black holes are created equal. They come in many different masses and their behavior differs wildly depending on that mass. And I wanted to learn about a very special type of black hole, the supermassive black hole. Once you thought it might just be a song, but it's actually a a technical scientific term. So I sat down with UC Berkeley astronomy researcher Steve Croft to discuss all things supermassive. Steve uses radio astronomy to understand these black holes, often utilizing wide field astronomy arrays to help visualize them. We talk about their life, eating habits, and their role as nature's best particle accelerators. And if it sounds like I'm anthropomorphizing black holes, it's because I definitely am, and that's super fun. So that's going to be our interview this week. Yeah, I have to admit that I actually am a little bit afraid of black holes. Actually, I'm a lot afraid of black holes. It just sounds so scary. 
Like they're going to pop up in your life somehow? Yeah, I don't know. It just sounds like the creepiest thing in the universe. (laughs) Well, don't journey to the center of any galaxy anytime soon, then. (laughs) Okay, I won't. Anything catch your eye in the news this week? Yeah, actually, two stories did. One uh, is about coffee. So how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? I'm not a huge coffee drinker, but I literally had a cup of coffee like right before we sat down. So I'm (laughs) specially motivated around this news story. Well, if you are at all a coffee drinker, you might have noticed in the last few years, we've had a couple of news stories about how coffee can have some benefits, right? Um, People used to always think, oh, too much caffeine is really bad for you. And, you know, that's still true to some extent. But this recent study caught my eye in the American Heart Association journal Circulation. And this study showed that moderate coffee drinkers, so they define that as having fewer than five cups a day, actually might have a lower risk of death uh, from diseases like cardiovascular disease, neurological diseases, type 2 diabetes, and surprisingly, suicide. I didn't realize there's people that drink more than five cups of coffee a day, that less than five cups is moderate. So in moderation, they're like, four cups, you're good. Well, remember what these, I mean, like one venti Starbucks latte is probably, or coffee is probably like five cups, right? Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Cups are, cups are little. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But in in any case, so there are a couple more interesting things about the study. One is that coffee drinkers were also more likely to smoke and drink alcohol. (laughs) What? (laughs) How are those two things connected? Uh, You know, I don't know. Coffee drinkers are cool. Um, What cafe are these people going to? Um, But when the researchers redid the analysis on only those people who didn't smoke or who had never smoked, they saw an even greater protective effect of coffee. Do they have any explanation of what's protective about coffee? Well, interestingly, it has the same effect whether it's caffeinated or decaf. Well, okay, this is trying to make a lot less sense. (laughs) Yeah, so apparently there's something in coffee that might reduce insulin resistance, and that might play a role in mitigating inflammation, and inflammation is something that is at the heart of many of these diseases, although I don't know how it plays into suicide. So... We've talked a lot about inflammatory diseases being related to the onset of some chronic diseases, whether it's uh, diabetes, uh, heart disease, um, numerous chronic conditions. You said something in coffee. Did they get more specific than that at all? Um, Well, they called uh, the things bioactive compounds, which to me is no no more informative. Uh, So I don't know that they necessarily know, or I don't know if I didn't read the right part of the study. But um, yeah, coffee, coffee beans. (laughs) This is, (laughs) I think this is being filed away in a special category of published too soon, I'm gonna go with. (laughs) Well, I don't know. We we, let's 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 uh, give the benefit of the doubt to the people who actually wrote uh, the study and not to my ignorance. Fair enough. Okay. The other thing that caught my eye, and you've probably all seen this already, were pictures of an individual who had a face transplant recently that was successful. So this person was actually a volunteer firefighter, and he was the first first responder to have a face transplant, and his transplant is the most extensive transplant yet. Um, He had extensive burns across his face, head, neck, and torso after a roof collapsed on him during a fire. Have you seen these images? Yeah, they're they're shocking. 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 I, 
in, in but it, with an sort of an uplifting sort of element to them. It's yeah. uh, amazing how much damage he had, especially around. I, I noticed it the most around his eyes. Yeah, and that was one of the most problematic areas. So the firefighter's name is Patrick Hardison. He had lost his ears, lips, eyelids, much of his nose, and his hair, including his eyebrows. And even though he had undergone more than seventy surgeries, he was still severely impaired. For example, he couldn't blink because he didn't have any eyelids, and so he was in danger of losing his eyes to infections. So that meant that he couldn't do things like drive, for example. It was very hard for him to live a normal life. So in the most extensive face transplant operation to date, surgeons at the NYU Langone Medical Center transplanted the face, scalp, eyelids, ears, ear canals, the muscles that control blinking, and several other bony structures from the donor. And the donor was a man named David Rodebach, who was 26 years old, and he was an artist and an avid bicyclist. He had won several cycling competitions. He was well known in the BMX community, and he had died tragically in an accident. So he donated, or because he had he had indicated that he was um, an organ donor. His family agreed to have all of these uh, parts of his face and, and other musculature donated. And amazingly, the surgery was so successful that almost immediately the hair on Patrick Hardison's head and his beard began growing back. Wow. It's been a couple months since this actually happened. Do we yeah. know how he's progressed since then? Uh, apparently, he seems to be finally able to do many of his daily life activities independently. He's able to blink uh, and so forth. So they think that, you know, perhaps this is something, wow. a solution. I mean, he's obviously going to have to remain on um, immune suppressants for the rest of his life. And what normal is to him is probably not normal for uh, for all of us, but just that increased function is going to be uh, dramatic for him. I guess we always heard that the skin is actually the the human body's largest organ and mm-hmm. like viewing this as a as a really uh, novel organ transplant uh, is kind of intriguing in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, super interesting. That's it for news this week and we'll be back with my interview with Steve Croft. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com, the official razor partner of Movember. Harry's delivers a superior shave for an incredible price. Over 1 million people have made the switch. They bought a razor factory in Germany that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century and sell their products at factory direct prices so they only cost a fraction of the price of big brands. I use Harry's pretty much every day. I guess I have to go down to a mustache. I didn't realize it's already in the middle of November. I gotta get down from my beard to a mustache. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an amazing deal. Use coupon code Inquiring Minds and you can get their starter set, which includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel, which I recommend, for just $10. So go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and use coupon code Inquiring Minds to get $5 off your first order. That's harrys.com, coupon code Inquiring Minds. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it's still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails like whiskey and ginger, gin and tonics, so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. So to check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. I have to keep thinking. Don't say Zed. Don't say Zed. Z-E-V-I-A dot com for our Canadian listeners. 
Steve Croft. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Kishore. So a lot of your research has focused on supermassive black holes, uh, which is a distinct item from black holes themselves. I'm hoping you can tell us what a supermassive black hole is. Sure. So um, if your listeners are familiar with black holes, uh, they're Essentially, the small ones, the sort of stellar mass black holes, are the endpoint in the life of a massive star. Uh, so, a star that can't support itself anymore against gravity. And there are sort of various endpoints to the lives of stars, depending on how massive they are. Uh, stars can end their lives uh, just as sort of fizzling out um, as red dwarfs, or they can go through various other end stages, depending on their mass, ending up as white dwarfs or neutron stars. Uh, and they're gradually getting sort of more and more compact. Um, so a neutron star is something that is essentially something like the mass of the sun uh, compressed into sort of the size of a city a few kilometers across. But eventually, matter can't hold itself up uh, against the the weight that's pressing down, basically. And the star, a more massive star, will collapse into a black hole. But we know not just of these stellar mass black holes, of which there are probably many millions uh, in our own galaxy. Um, that are the end products of the lives of, of previous generations of stars. But we know now that wherever we look at the centers of galaxies, including our own, we find black holes that are much bigger, uh, typically millions or even billions of times the mass of the sun. And actually, the question as to how these black holes got started is not particularly clear. We know that they were there in the early universe. When we look uh, in the very distant universe, we see supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. Uh, and actually, because of the way that looking in the distant universe works, the light takes uh, a long time to reach us. We're actually seeing these objects as they were billions of years ago. Before we get into the actual formation of these, I'm hoping you can give us a, a sense of scale again, because you mentioned the supermassive black hole is, you know, millions of times bigger than than the size of our sun. And so it, the idea of... Uh, of how big this is, how what supermassive actually means compared to a black hole, what kind of factor of difference are we talking about? Yeah, so we're talking sort of something that is sort of for a, a black hole that is billions of solar masses, it's going to be about the size of the inner solar system. And so there's actually a relationship called the Schwarzschild radius, which tells you um, really that the size of a black hole just depends uh, on the mass, basically. Um, you can sort of put some simple numbers in and it scales uh, in a certain way with the with the mass that goes in. And so, you know, really there's a lot of mass in, in quite a small region. So you're talking um, sizes of really typically light minutes uh, across or light hours across perhaps for the, the big ones where, you know, this is a measure of distance basically that we use in astronomy. People have probably heard of light years, so the distance that light travels in one year. And a galaxy like our own is about 100,000 light years across uh, the actual galaxy. And then the black hole lives in this very small region that is really more like um, kind of light minutes across uh, in, in the center. But it has sort of this undue influence because there's so much mass that's packed into this very small volume. Now, when it comes to the commonality of this, is this something that's in the center of every galaxy? Or is there something unique about our galaxy and others that lead to the formation of these supermassive black holes? So essentially, wherever we've looked, we see them, certainly in galaxies above a certain size. Uh, and they may be in smaller galaxies, too. And it's just sort of harder to find them. But uh, as I was saying, even when we look into the very distant universe, which means that we're looking a long way back in time, 
we can see galaxies, for example, in Hubble Space Telescope observations um, that uh, we're seeing as they were when the universe was 10% of its current age. And when we look at them in sufficient detail that we can see, uh, for example, the motions of the stars uh, in the regions around the, the center or the, um, uh, the the gas that is kind of whirling around, uh, we see these signatures that there are these supermassive black holes that live there even then. And so they've grown sort of pretty early in the history of the universe. And then we see sort of signs of, of how they feed and grow in the intervening billions of years. Uh, they're not all feeding at any given time. Black holes sort of go a long time between meals typically, but they do sort of light up on occasion and they're kind of messy eaters, which is really sort of how, how they betray their presence. I think we're going to have to talk about that in more detail when you talk about black holes feeding. Because when you talk, when we think about a a uh, I guess the term I'm about to use is a normal black hole versus a supermassive black hole. That seems a weird uh, turn of phrase there. But when we talk about a normal black hole, its sort of meals are probably very different. I imagine a supermassive black hole is probably eating whole stars all at once. Is that is that what the meal consists of, or is it something else entirely? They, they do on occasion. And so sort of um, one analogy that I've used is, uh, you know, sometimes they do snack uh, on stars that happen to pass by. Uh, and in those cases, actually, the bigger ones um, can just swallow a star whole. Uh, so you really wouldn't see much of uh, a signature of them having swallowed a star. The star just goes in over the event horizon and, and the black hole gains a little bit of mass. And that's that. But black holes that are kind of at the low end of the supermassive scale, if that makes sense, so things that are kind of millions of times the mass of the sun rather than billions of times, they actually are sort of more destructive, essentially because the star can get closer and sort of feel more of a stretching force, more of a tidal force across it. And so it can get shredded before it falls into the star. And there was an effect that was predicted from this sort of shredding of stars about 30 years ago, which was only recently actually seen in observations, but uh, these are called tidal disruptions. So again, in the same way sort of that the moon raises tides on the earth through its gravity and sort of stretches and squashes the earth in different directions. And we mostly see that, of course, in the oceans going up and down. The gravity of a black hole can sort of stretch a star out or even stretch. I mean, there's been sort of these uh, creative sort of descriptions of what it would be like for a human to fall into a, a black hole. And certainly in the smaller ones, it's the ones where you feel the force on your feet stronger than the force on your head as you're falling in feet first and you get spaghettified uh, as you fall in. And so um, for these more massive black holes, they're able to do this with whole stars essentially and kind of shred them and stretch them apart. And some of the gas falls in and then some of it uh, kind of um, gives rise to this flare essentially that you kind of see um, uh, sort of illuminating, uh, betraying the signature of this star that's been destroyed. Maybe this is a misconception, but I always thought when something went into a black hole, that was it. It's gone forever. But it, it seems like in the way you're talking about it, that there are ejections and, and sort of other phenomena associated with something falling into a black hole. Right. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about snacking, but black holes can also gorge themselves on gas that's surrounding them. And as I sort of alluded to earlier, they're also messy eaters. And so you don't really see the stuff that goes in, but you do see kind of the, the mess that they make of the gas and, and the other material that really is either spiraling in towards the black hole or some of it um, doesn't actually make it into the black hole and it can end up in winds or jets that are coming out. It's sort of difficult to get a hole in one. I mean, if you're, some of your listeners play golf, you know, actually kind of getting the golf ball lined up with the hole is kind of hard. And in the same way, 
sort of getting stuff that's lined up that's going to kind of eventually go over the black hole's event horizon is uh, you know a bit of a challenge getting that material down in there into the center and we have to sort of as physicists kind of think about how you actually get rid of um, particularly the angular momentum if you think of the earth going around the sun what would it take to to redirect the earth so that it fell into the sun well it would take essentially sort of bleeding off a lot of that that energy in order to make that happen in the same way with gas that's swirling around black holes you have to sort of find a way to slow it down and to get it into the center and that kind of betrays itself by that energy being dissipated as as heat and light basically and that's sort of the signature that we see of this kind of maelstrom of gas that's swirling around typically in an accretion disk this sort of disk of material some of which will eventually make its way into the black hole but you can also get kind of winds and jets of material that are flowing out with the stuff that sort of doesn't make it over the event horizon well i'm certainly not going to think about golf the same way now that i can think about it as um an analogy for black holes uh I guess this is a kind of a strange question, but I would imagine that black holes don't really admit light in, in the most traditional sense. So what kind, how do we know all of this? How, like what kind of observation tools are we using? I'm assuming optical methods of detection aren't exactly the prime choice for looking uh, for observing black holes. Well, in some cases they are actually. And funnily enough, so there's another term that's used uh, in relation to these supermassive black holes, uh, quasar. And a quasar uh, originally is a, con- a contraction of uh, quasi-stellar object. And so these are things that were seen uh, in optical surveys and they look point-like, they look like stars, but they had really weird spectral signatures, um, which it took a while for astronomers to realize actually were uh, a sign that they were in the distant universe. They were at high redshift. Essentially, these spectral signatures were shifted to a part of the, the spectrum where nobody really expected them to be. Because when you figure out how bright they appear in the optical, and then you figure out how far away they are, you come up with ridiculous numbers as to how luminous they they must have to be as what kind of power they're putting out. And we now realize, of course, that that power is coming from this stuff that's falling into the black hole. Uh, And really, you know, there's immense amounts of energy that are involved. There are these these central engines. I mean, that's sort of one way that they're referred to are driving all of these processes that are taking place um, across the electromagnetic spectrum. They're even heating up some of the gas that's falling in to millions of degrees where it's glowing at x-ray wavelengths and even uh, in gamma rays so uh, you know these quasars um, these actively feeding black holes or active galactic nuclei the sort of a a variety of terms by which they're known betray their presence from x-rays through gamma rays Uh, they're seen in the infrared again sort of the hot gas and dust swirling around uh, in the optical with these sort of clouds of material that, that have kind of excited gas that are nearby the black hole and then down at radio wavelengths and this is actually because there are huge magnetic fields associated with many of these black holes and the processes taking place around them. And material can get sort of swept up, particularly electrons gyrating around in magnetic fields. Uh, actually, I mean, this is the process by which uh, radio transmissions work, you know, radio um, electrons moving around in, in antennas, uh, broadcasting at radio wavelengths. And essentially, uh, black holes are sort of a scaled up version of those uh, at some level. Now, radio is... is- the detection method that you've uh, frequently used to observe black holes, but they sound like, based on your last description, these are hard to miss in a lot of ways, based on the fact that they show up in a lot of different sort of um, spectra and methodologies. Would you say that that's accurate, or are these difficult to find? 
in our observation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's true in terms of the ones that are actively feeding. And particularly when you point a radio telescope at the sky, you see lots of actively feeding black holes, sort of in contrast to an optical telescope or to the view that you would get if you went out to a dark sky site. You know, if you go camping in the Sierras or something and you look up at the sky, you're seeing mostly stars in our own galaxy. And you're seeing a little bit of kind of the background of stars in the Milky Way. If you're somewhere really dark, the stars and dust and gas that are out there. The optical sky as seen by the Hubble Space Telescope is dominated mostly by galaxies. Certainly, if you point the telescope away from our own galaxy, you're seeing stars in other galaxies, stars and, and gas. Uh, and this starlight really is, is sort of dominant in finding things like these quasars in the optical we have techniques, but it's not as easy as finding them uh, at radio wavelengths where they're really obvious. Essentially, the sky at radio wavelengths is full of these actively feeding black holes, almost everything that you look at. But you're talking about the center of a, of a galaxy that could be you know, millions and billions of light years away. What kind of sensitivity are we talking about for a radio telescope to pick up something that far away? Yeah, I mean... Um, the energies that are involved with radio observations are actually tiny. Uh, you know, the, the radio photons, these sort of stretched out uh, long wavelength photons in the electromagnetic spectrum don't pack much of a punch. I mean, if you think of um, going to the doctor and, uh, uh, you know, or go to the dentist and get your teeth x-rayed and they make you wear this sort of lead bib to, to stop the x-rays, which are very energetic from damaging your tissue. But Nobody really kind of worries about, well, I guess some people do worry actually <laughs> uh, about radio waves, about Wi-Fi and this kind of thing. And, you know, there's, there's um, some sort of high energy radio, uh, like your microwave oven obviously is using radio waves to, you know, to cook your dinner. But the radio waves that are coming in from broadcasts, even from local radio stations are pretty low energy. But then you scale that down to the powers that we're picking up from these things in the distant universe. And it really... You know, it requires a lot of sensitive detectors and um, very kind of carefully constructed amplifiers to to pick up these signals. I, so I think of when you, when you mention radio telescopes, like the satellite dish on my roof kind of shape. Uh, give us an idea of what these radio telescopes actually look like in practice. Yeah, so that is sort of the classic radio telescope. And if people have watched movies like uh, Contact, for example, um, they'll have seen some of the scenes were filmed at the Very Large Array in New Mexico, which is 27 big satellite dishes, basically. Um, the sort of big monolithic dishes like the Arecibo radio telescope that's been in, I know, at least one Bond movie. And uh, other telescopes like the Green Bank telescope, which is sort of a steerable single dish telescope. Um, and so these look like kind of the classical satellite dish sort of things, either just a huge dish. Arecibo is a thousand foot wide satellite dish that are built in a bowl in the mountains in Puerto Rico. Uh, the very large array, um, you know, those antennas are, are are a lot smaller. I think they're about sort of 100 feet across and there's 27 of them. But we're moving now towards things that look like more like your car radio antenna. And we just build lots of them. And essentially, this uh, sort of advance has been enabled by the development of high-speed computing, where we're able to connect together many hundreds or even thousands of these individual dipole antennas, as we call them. So really just a very simple sort of car radio type thing and to then sort of synthesize those together into these big arrays and actually even with these sort of satellite dish kind of things there's sort of different techniques that are uh, optimal for different kinds of surveys that you might want to do but even the sort of 
typical in the typical regime that instruments like the VLA operate at, the move is more towards building more small antennas, uh, large numbers of small dishes, uh, rather than building huge sort of steel structures. This seems crazy to me. Like I always thought when I think astronomy, I think scale when, when it comes to detectors. You're, you're saying the other direction, really, it's about um, quantity. What advantage does that really give us? Does that give us more sensitivity? That Does that give us better resolution? Or does it sort of widen the picture that we're getting? Uh, all three, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so in particular, uh, why do you want to build a big dish? Well, firstly, it's because, as I was saying, you know, these signals are so faint that you just want collecting area. Um, you know, the reason why uh, big optical telescopes are, are scaling Or you up. want to be in a Bond movie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're a supervillain, then you probably want uh, a big dish too. But uh, the other thing is that the bigger the telescope you build, then the better the resolution that you get. Um, and essentially, um, you know, again, there are sort of formulae that you would learn in kind of uh, undergraduate physics that tell you how those two things scale, that as your telescope gets bigger and bigger, your resolution gets better and better. But eventually, how big can you build? I mentioned Arecibo, it's a thousand feet across, and already that's too big to be steerable. It has to be just sort of built in a hollow in the mountains. And so if you wanted to build something two or three times as big, really, you have no option but to build smaller dishes and place them at the distance apart um, that correspond to the resolution that you want. And in fact, this is what VLA does. The VLA antennas uh, are mounted on railroad tracks and they can be moved around actually pushed out, I think the maximum uh, sort of distance between any two antennas is something like 20 miles. So normally they're, or some of the time they're in a compact configuration, some of the time they're spread out um, sort of across the uh, the plains there in New Mexico, which is going to give higher resolution on sources where we really want that detail. Is this true across a lot of different disciplines? Like, I imagine they're not building these arrays just to look for supermassive black holes. They're they're looking at a whole range of phenomena uh, associated to this because the primary thing I associate with these radio arrays is is what the is the work that SETI's been doing, looking for you know, intelligent signals, if you will. Right, absolutely. And that is still something that's going on. You know, I mentioned the movie Contact. There's not much study going on in the, the VLA, although you'll see Jodie Foster's character in that movie sitting on the hood of her car with some headphones on, kind of listening to the data as they come in, which is also kind of not really how we tend to operate. But there is uh, SETI work that's going on. Um, but there's also kind of a whole range of processes, that it, natural processes that emit uh, in the radio one thing that was thought to be aliens, actually, uh, and was denoted LGM-1, the first source that was seen, Little Green Men 1, um, was a source that was seen uh, 50 or so years ago, which later turned out to be uh, what we now know as a pulsar, which is one of these neutron stars, as I mentioned before, these kind of very dense stellar mass objects with very uh, powerful magnetic fields spinning very rapidly uh, and giving off this sort of regular pulse. And so it turns out that pulsars are interesting in their own right as probes of sort of the extreme gravity that you get in these compact objects. But there's also people that are using now uh, measurements, uh, timing of these pulsars in order to try and detect uh, gravitational waves, which are sort of um, a prediction of Einstein's theories that permeate the universe as far as we know, um, particularly the sort of ripples in space-time coming out from massive objects. Interestingly as well, they could be used as probes of supermassive black holes again, where you get two supermassive black holes in a close orbit that are sort of spiraling in together and about to merge. And they can give out these sort of ripples 
which can then be picked up by their effect on these sort of uh, populations of pulsars and how these uh, objects are timed. I'm always impressed with the naming conventions of astronomers with little green men and and exact technical terms like supermassive uh, when they come up with uh, uh, different conventions. Let's go back to the, the supermassive black holes themselves. When it comes to this, you describe this sort of feeding and snacking this uh, this sort of ecosystem of a of a life of a of one of these supermassive black holes how do we know that is that purely from observing a lot of them or are we able to actually image what happens to them over time uh, again it's a bit of both and so um you know you have options if you want to do depending on what kind of study you want to do you know one example an analogy that i've used in the past is if you want to study a forest for example Let's say you want to see how trees grow. So you could go out into the forest, you could send some grad students out with clipboards and you could have them make notes uh, over the course of a day. And that's going to be great for sort of seeing uh, processes that are taking place on the course of a day, animals that are coming out, um, you know, flowers that are opening and closing, uh, these kind of things that are taking place on short timescales. But if you want to know about things that are taking place on long timescales, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a grad student that's going to sit there for a few decades and then come back with their write-up and tell you, yes, you know, I now understand how oak trees grow. But if you do a population study, I mean, essentially by kind of classifying things first, then you can understand life cycles. And we do this with not just with uh, these black holes, but we can see them at different stages in their lives. And so long as we get the classification correct, we can then sort of come up with kind of a scenario of, of how they grow over time. But it's also very much of interest to monitor them in the short term and to see the processes that are taking place, again, sort of close to the event horizon. So I mentioned things like stars getting shredded. I mean, you can see flares that change on a timescale of weeks to months, essentially, from these tidal disruption events. And so, the, you know, these are quite dramatic uh, when we're used to things, again, in astronomy sort of generally being pretty unchanging for long periods of time. And how much of the of the sky have we surveyed for this? I mean, there's you know, billions, if not uh, trillions of galaxies out there, correct? That's right. Um, I can't imagine we've we've surveyed very many of them at all for, uh, for these uh, supermassive black holes. I mean, one of the advantages that we have in radio astronomy compared to optical astronomy is that we tend to have kind of a wider field of view. We can see a wider region of the sky at any one time, whereas the optical astronomers tend to be doing more of these sort of pencil beam surveys. It's kind of like looking down a straw at the sky, that's changing too. They're, they're getting wider and wider fields. But essentially, you know, what you're interested in is the combination of that field of view of how much of the sky you're scanning and your sensitivity. And so there's always kind of trade-offs. So, you know, we see the brightest objects. Essentially, we have the capability with these radio telescopes to see these bright quasars or active galactic nuclei out to the very distant universe, um, both with our radio telescopes and our optical telescopes. But the question then is, if you were to look for sort of more kind of uh, average emission, particularly from these distant objects, um, what kind of instrument would you need? And in fact, you know, you need to sort of, again, develop both field of view and sensitivity. And eventually we're moving towards uh, the planned square kilometer array, which is going to be the biggest radio telescope ever constructed, which is sort of the next move basically um, in, in scale to enable us to, to probe both the sensitivity and, and the large regions of the sky at the same time. How much of this is driven by economics? It seems 
that a lot of these larger arrays are reasonably cheap in the scientific realm to build, like the Allen Telescope Array. I think the the bill for that one was in the millions of dollars instead of the hundreds of millions of dollars. Is the economics of the of this area of exploration really inviting investment? Uh, yes, it is, and I think kind of the idea that you can deploy an instrument quickly. So the telescope that I'm working with most right now is the Murchison Widefield Array, which is in Western Australia, actually at one of the sites where the square kilometer array is going to be built. Um, And this costs a few tens of millions to build, which as you say, is sort of relatively cheap on the scale of these huge international projects. And it doesn't really look like a telescope at all to sort of the untrained eye. When you look at this, it's these kind of weird antennas that are scattered out across the Australian outback. Uh, The telescope was conceived of uh, and sort of developed and implemented on relatively short timescales compared to some of these massive international projects. And really, these telescopes are kind of acting as test beds um, going forward. I mean, they're doing really interesting science as well. So the, the cream of the science that eventually Square Kilometer Array is going to follow up on. But they're also testing the technologies and particularly the capabilities for dealing with large data rates, because when you do max out on your sensitivity and your area of sky, you're generating huge data volumes. And this is sort of, you know, all science now is heading towards big data at some level, but astronomy and I guess particle physics and probably, you know, the studies of the brain are kind of leading the way in terms of the huge amounts of data that they're generating. Where are we in our understanding of this particular phenomena that you're you're studying with these black holes? Are we relatively early in our understanding and there's a lot more surveying to do? Or are we getting to a maturation uh, level with our nuance of understanding how these how these systems work? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think it's sort of a field that has reached uh, a level of maturity at some level um, where there are a lot of interesting details that remain. And in particular, uh, I think one of them is why do we see these big black holes so early on in the history of the universe and the sort of relationships between the formation of the black hole and the galaxy uh, in which a typical black hole lives, um, how the material gets uh, into the center of the black hole, how these jets and winds are launched. But they are kind of, they're not exactly small details. I mean, some of these are quite big details in terms of our understanding, but it is a field that is um, sort of really reaching maturity at some level. Is there something in particular that you really look at as the lasting legacy of our understanding of black holes in terms of informing either the rest of physics or astronomy itself? Um, They provide amazing probes of strong gravity. So you have these particularly black holes that are in the last stages of spiraling in and ultimately to merge where we're probing energies uh, that we're never going to be able to reach with accelerators on Earth. I mean, actually, even black holes that aren't merging are are impressive particle accelerators. Uh, We've been doing some work trying to follow up uh, candidate neutrino emission events. So these are Uh, particles which were featured uh, in the Nobel Prizes, uh, Nobel Prize for Physics, where they're very difficult to detect, but they're actually the high energy neutrinos are signatures of these sort of enormous particle accelerators out there in the universe. So if you think the Large Hadron Collider is big, then try kind of accelerating particles around a supermassive black hole. And so, you know, if we can use these as probes for sort of extreme gravity and particle physics, then that really kind of has a lot of uh, a promise of, of refining models of gravity, refining our understanding of particle physics and, and uh, physics in these extreme environments. 
you know, based on your description, I have to say, I feel like Supermassive doesn't even do these particular black holes justice. Uh, they sound even more supermassive than the word supermassive. I think we have to invent a new word. And on that note, Steve Croft, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Black holes, weirder than any sort of real science fiction. Yeah, I'm still super scared of them. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I also think, you know, the physicists are among the most hilarious namers of things like LGMs and supermassive. <laughs> the thing that was really impressive to me when I think about su structures like this, black holes, things that have existed since the early universe, we're talking billions upon billions of years, that some of these observations, like their devouring of stars, their snacking on stars, sorry, um, can be observed in months and weeks timeframes is seem ludicrous to me that that these things get these stars that have been around for billions of years can get torn apart that quickly. And that we can learn so much just by imaging over time that really astounded me because the time scale is weeks seems and so this absurd. Doesn't scare you at all? It doesn't scare you know we're not real close to a supermassive black hole, right? Yet. I mean if they keep chomping up the universe. I mean, how long is it gonna take? I am really worried about your understanding of <laughs> physics right now. So astronomy is my worst science, which I try to stay away from as much as possible for for you know, clearly this is why. Um but the other thing I've always wondered about is like, I know we don't know what's in a black hole, but really what's in a black hole? Like what is in there? It could be like entire galaxies of things that did they operate in a completely different way? There's people that have made their whole career in science communication and physics by assessing that question, like talking about you know multiverse and all of these different things about what happens on the event horizon. Hell, Hollywood has made a lot of money by addressing that question. And functionally, I think it's uh, it's one of those like kind of flights of fancy that we see with with science that. You know, we see in biology with like gene editing, let's bring back the mammoth. Um, but at the same time, I think the real interesting question is what he poses. Like, we fundamentally don't understand gravity in the way that we need to. And this is the largest particle accelerator that exists in the universe. We'll never be able to build something like at this scale on Earth with this much mass and power. So increasing our understanding of just how gravity functions, I mean, we probably know less about gravity than we do evolution in a lot of senses. So I think that's actually the the real interesting thing of studying black holes. But if you want to just have a whole speculation podcast where we talk about what I think is on the other side of a black hole, we can do that. Yeah, we might, we might require a little more coffee or, you know, <laughs> some other kind of cocktails before we get into that. I can get decaf, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same, same thing. <laughs> So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Anonymous. Not that anonymous, I don't think. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com, the official razor partner of Movember. Harry's delivers a superior shave for an incredible price. Over 1 million people have made the switch. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an amazing deal. Use coupon code Inquiring Minds and you can get their starter set, which includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel for just $10. Go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter coupon code Inquiring Minds to get 
get started. And this episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is a zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it's still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, or even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails. Whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by neutrino lover Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Jian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. Be back with more space stories next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.